Good afternoon. Welcome to the Orange Chatham County Association of Realtors podcast series titled The Talk About. I'm Marcia Vaughn, the host of this series. I'm so happy to once again be with our podcast panel of experts, Jackie Tanner, Nada Bozimski, and Jay Crowler. Welcome, ladies. Today, we are not going to do a market update because we were just together two days shy of a month ago. And what I'm hearing, what I'm experiencing, and what you guys are hearing, experiencing, and telling me is that there is not a big change. So we don't need... Okay, so we are excited, though, to actually do this podcast for consumers of real estate. So we're going to title this Tips for Consumers, and we're going to talk about topics from a buyer's perspective as well as a seller's, and then general definition of terms and the the real estate buying process. Those of you who might be listening to this who live out of state, please keep in mind that we are answering these questions from the perspective of North Carolina real estate law and process and things like our due diligence. It might be very different than what you're experiencing in your state. So just be mindful that these are North Carolina agents speaking. We're in North Carolina, but there's a whole lot of wisdom here that will benefit those of you living elsewhere. You guys, let's start with some terminology. In North Carolina, You'll hear a realtor talk to buyer and seller about the OTP or the 2T or the contract. I was just going to interject and say, even after living here for 30 years, I'm going to have to start thinking of myself as a North Carolinian. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I didn't say that you were North Carolina. I said you were a North Carolina agent. Yeah. But I, I felt like I needed to think of myself. I know. As a North Carolina, but North Carolina answer. As a 55 year old after 30 years here from it's North time. North it's time. North Carolinians. Anyway. Jay, were you born in North Carolina? No, I was born in Louisiana. I know. I'm here yet. I know, Nita. You, you were already in trouble with Holland, right? No, I no, didn't. No. Do you know? I did. Okay. Um, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. So okay. we, we are well represented here. Okay, back to consumers and consumer tips. Now that you know where we're all all from, what our orientation is. It's important. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in this, I'm like Jackie, I've been in the South longer than I was in the North. So the whole topic on dealing with people for the North or dealing with people. Oh my gosh, don't get me started on that. Yeah, yeah no, oh. frankly, I'm sort of joking. So anyway. Yeah, yeah. I think Jay had something to say about the offer to purchase. What I was suggesting is that the offer to purchase is the standard form we all use. So it's a boilerplate form that we fill in the answers to, but it doesn't change. So the most important thing that I tell my clients is if you don't like the language in the contract, we can't buy a house. We can't change the language of the contract. Go to an attorney. You can go to an attorney and have the attorney draft a contract. Good luck with that because the mm-hmm. receiving agent is going to look at an attorney drafted contract. Mm-hmm. And go next. <laughs> Difficult buyer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So suck it up. The OTP we have on hand is what we use, and it uh-huh. does include this nifty little thing called due diligence. Okay. What is due diligence in the state of North Carolina as it pertains to real estate? 
So I do feel like we touched on this on a previous podcast. I'm sure we did, but we're hoping our audience is consumers today. So, Um, Okay, so what is due diligence? It's the right to change your mind for no reason. And that's important. The no reason piece is important because I keep coming across people who want to write addendums to have something to do with what happens during the due diligence period. And I'm like, but it's meaningless. It's Mm -hmm. meaningless. Can you give us an example of that? So, I mean, this is in the before times when things were normal and we actually had due diligence period because they disappeared. Um, But the buyer gets to change their mind literally for no reason if they want to. And the only penalty is the money that they've given to the seller that they get to keep in return for having kept the house off the market for whatever amount of time. And in my experience, that's generally been between two and four weeks, depending on how confident the buyer is. And again, in and mm-hmm. talking about normal real estate here. So I loved it, having grown up where there were all these contingencies and people were looking to get out of contracts literally on the day of closing. This is put up or shut up. This is the amount of time that you're going to buy. Mm-hmm. And if, the, if a house comes on down the road, literally down the road, like and on the same street for $20,000 less, and you've got a $5,000 non-refundable deposit on the line, then it's a no-brainer. If you want to, you can you can switch houses. Moving here from other states, and they think due diligence when we first mention it is just what anybody thinks about doing due diligence when they go to buy a car, for example, research the make and model, et cetera. But in real estate in North Carolina, it's different. So how do you explain to your clients from other states or clients living here who haven't gone through due diligence before what it is carefully (laughs) (laughs) hallelujah i do um it's part of my front-loading process when i'm talking to potential new buyers because it is the biggest potential stumbling block and i like to explain to people that you are buying time to make a decision whether or not you want to buy the house or not literally literally buying buying time. time And when we first started with this uh, particular contract, um, the due diligence fee might have been five hundred to fifteen hundred, maybe two thousand dollars for higher uh, priced houses. And and now, you know, that will just get laughed at, I guess, for a house that's you know in a competitive offer situation. So these higher due diligence fees, which we've talked about a lot. I explain to people that it's a non-refundable fee. It's it's a it's a, a payment made directly to the seller. If they were to pick your offer, that it is due at that time of the the executed contract. And a lot of times, funds have to be wired. And it is a fee that is made to the seller directly, and it is not refundable. And a lot of people will ask, "Yes, I understand that, but." What if the inspection turns up there's structural mm-hmm. problems? The answer to that is it is non-refundable. It is non-refundable unless the seller breaches the contract. And that is one very difficult to prove and two very uncommon. So mm-hmm. I just tell them that it is non-refundable. It's a it's a very high fee typically, um, in particularly in a competitive offer situation to, to be competitive. Um, most likely in our area on a house that's receiving multiple offers. Still, we're seeing offers with due diligences, I think, of a minimum of 20 probably. And we're still seeing some, you know, offers with 100,000 due diligence if it's a very 
it's, you know, even if it's not a million dollar house, if it's a very competitive house mm-hmm. and there are tons of offers. Yeah. I and recently saw $200,000. Yeah. So I think it's, it's one of these terms. We only have a certain number of terms to set ourselves apart on the offer. Mm-hmm. Right. And if it's a very um, competitive offer, it's mm-hmm. one of the ways that people can set themselves apart. Okay. And the important thing to remember about that due diligence is the buyer is risking nothing unless they exit the contract. Because that money is applied to the purchase price. Right. So if you put $200,000 down. It's just a pre-down payment. It's pre-down payment. It doesn't cost you anything, but it makes an impression to the seller that you're committed to the house. I get questions about that a lot. It's the when, Because I'm like you, Nada, I refer to it as non-refundable mm-hmm. from the get-go so yeah. that my, my client understands it is non-refundable. You can't say that enough times. Can you say non-refundable enough? Enough times. What are the reasons that you would look to get out of I, this I do that as well, yes. I think right? So and it typically is things like, well, there are structural things or there's, you know, something meaningful. And then there's, well, it doesn't the appraisal. Right. Is the other piece. Right. Or I don't qualify for the loan. The importance of having a local trusted, experienced lender yep. in this decision. I once had a client use uh, a, a certain lender. Um, and you know, I, I told him, I said, this, it's not going to go well. And sure enough, it didn't. And did they, you know, dial a 1-800 number to get the, somebody uh-huh. on the, the up and online did they lender. care about the due diligence expiration? No, not really. a bit. Not They're, a bit. They probably didn't even understand it. Right. No, they don't. Because they did not, not understand what the buyer had on the line Yeah, when they were being cavalier about whatever process they needed to still go through. Okay, so you guys, you're touching on this. Can you tell us more about what have your clients tripped up on as far as due diligence goes that messes them up because they don't fully understand it? That it's non-refundable. <laughs> like that yeah. it's so much money. Wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. How right. is that possible? Right. How is it possible? How is that possible? That doesn't make sense. Um, you're right. Yeah, how many times have you heard, but that's crazy. It is crazy, and and I'll agree. crazy, and and we need to rewrite our contract. I'm going to interject that. I think the only time that it's crazy is during this crazy market because nobody saw that coming. Right. And nobody saw the way that that was going to evolve. Right. That's where done with all of this. Yes. It is wonderful no it doesn't it doesn't you do not sense. get to ask the seller to take their house off the market while you come up with the reasons why you want them to come off the price yeah. or not buy it mm-hmm. for no you know i when i worked for a closing attorney the number of transactions that i saw that dissolved at the closing table mm-hmm. and the seller got nothing yeah yeah and this is like here you go you buy the time you you so what do you say when a buyer says so this due diligence in north carolina is all about protecting the seller the seller has nothing to lose really in this process if there's a hundred grand in due diligence no, it, it, it's not about just protecting the seller that that's what we're seeing now is a result of the nature of petition yeah. Right, not the way that... It was designed to balance the level of risk to the buyer and the seller. That's what it was designed for. But it's uh-huh. it's not working anymore because of our competitive market. Uh-huh. 
the well, nature of our so market is, is it, critical is it, of the... Yeah, because it, it, it's my impression that now what a buyer's agent will do is say, if this is multiple offers, if you are going to bring, for example, a hundred grand to the closing table, go ahead and write it up as a hundred grand in due diligence because you're going to have to come up with that cash right. anyway. Yeah. yeah. yeah so that, whatever your down payment is... Put it in the due diligence. So that completely changes the nature of due diligence Mm -hmm. compared to what its original intention was. You have no power. No power anymore. And you guys remember when it was something very different. Yeah, I totally remember when it was other around. You know, the number of times buyers got out of a contract over basically hanging the seller out to dry. Yep. And the seller was choice was a you know like do I keep the deal or right or lose all this time and was the sellers were taking it on the chin. Due diligence changed that. The buyer had to have some skin in the game at that point. But now the skin in the game is all of your skin. Mm-hmm. You've got to take it all and you've yeah. got to throw it in the game. Mm-hmm. And if you yeah. don't, you don't get the house. But so I disagree with Nate, Nate on that a little bit in that it's crazy, but it's not unfair. Because it's just what someone else is willing to do. It's free market at work. Say, that's what I mean by the competition. It's but free market I'm at work. Not a, a, when it shifts, and it will um, shift back, the, the, we're going to have the same argument on the other side. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's, it is... You, you mean it's fair because it's free market in that it's what the market will bear. Exactly. And Well, here's, here's the thing, too. Okay, to your point. Mm-hmm. The offer to purchase reads that the house is being sold as is. So it is understood that you're going into this contract knowing that the house is being sold in its current condition as is. And the issue is trusting that the that the sellers are accurately disclosing the issues with the house on, on their seller disclosure, because really that is where things get hung up. So like, do you want the house? Do you not want the house? You know, when you're signing that contract, it clearly states that the house is being sold as is. And it had been in our area, it had become the norm. We typically will negotiate around repair issues. Historically, Mm -hmm. we were negotiating, even though the offer reads that it's as is. Mm -hmm. And I think that is sort of where people were getting hung up. Because when you give large amounts of non-refundable money, you don't have any leverage to negotiate anymore. But the truth is, you didn't, re- like the offer already says that the house is being sold as is. So you're going into it having to trust that the seller's disclosure is accurate, that they're not clueless about the condition of their home, that they have more to about working with somebody. For example, the sellers have identified that the roof is five years old, but you look at it and it's got moss on it and it's mm-hmm. completely, you know, Having an agent who really understands how to the construction of a house and how it's made and everything or what the siding is, the age of things and how to look at things. I think that's another huge piece of what I explain to people in due diligence. And this is important, I think, because I don't I don't want to put anybody at risk. I don't want to make people feel really like, you know, completely distraught that they have so much money on the line. So why do inspections? You still have to know. You know what you're buying. You have to know what you're buying. Okay, so So, wait just one second. So you've put, let's say, a hundred grand down, non-refundable due diligence. 
And you know you're not going to walk away from that hundred grand because most people you can't afford to do that. Right? Why do inspections? You still have to know what's going on with your house, even if it's something that you have to get ahead of, so that you don't have a two hundred thousand dollar problem down the road. Or so there may also be a potential to negotiate around it if so, if it is something that they didn't necessarily disclose or maybe they didn't know about. Okay, talk well, a little bit about that. Well, so, I haven't really changed the way I explain that all that much in the sense that my approach used to be prior to due diligence that when we go look at the house as an agent, I'm looking in the crawl space, I'm going in the attic, I'm, I'm looking for all the things. What's the age Red of the lights. agent, right? We're looking at the disclosure, we're looking to, to the previous podcast, you know, how is the house built? Mm-hmm. How solid of an investment is this? The things that we know at that point when we go in and make an offer and a price, we are understanding that the roof is 20 years old, that the driveway is being eaten up by tree roots, whatever. Mm-hmm. Then when we come to the inspection and we discover things that aren't, that none of us knew about, mm-hmm. right? The seller or the buyer, we have a right. And this isn't this isn't technical, but to me, this is etiquette. <laughs> we go back and say, we didn't know about this. We're going to ask you to fix this. Now, I have been doing that even with $100,000 on the line because the seller, or at least the agent, has to disclose whatever we find that comes to that level to the next buyer. Now, they could keep $100,000 and fix it and whatever, but I find that when you are nice and you approach things in a really, like, I realize I have no power here, but Hoping that if you people would do the right thing. You know, Mr. Seller, Mrs. Seller, Ms. Seller. From a place if you reasonable. Are correct. Yes. It's, and there is a reasonable standard in them. And is it not, Jay, very common that people will step up to the plate and try to do the right thing? I find I have found more often than not, if you make a reasonable request based on things that nobody could reasonably foresee, the sellers are often reasonable in their response, even if they are in totally in the power position. Mm-hmm. I agree. Mm-hmm. You know, so it doesn't mean you can't negotiate. Mm-hmm. It just means you have to change your style of negotiation. They may not like it. From a demand to an ask. That is a style of negotiation that I wish more people would But it's, it's not a demand anymore. It's an ask. Correct. Look, hey, I get it. You know we're not walking away. We've got $100,000 on the table. We're not walking away. Mm-hmm. But we don't believe your seller knew this. How many times have I written those exactly? We don't believe your seller knew this. Mm-hmm. Work with us on this. So consumers. Almost always they will. <laughs> the form that real estate agents in North Carolina fill out if they're representing the buyer and they're making that ask is called a due diligence request form. Request. Which ironically is non-binding forms. They're meaningless. The DDR is the due diligence request. I, I often will yeah, negotiate on without having to fill it out. And there are those that yeah. want to fill it out for every person. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I think, especially since the market became so wild and crazy, so much, don't you think, is negotiated verbally? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Almost everything's negotiated verbally. And, and whenever possible, I negotiate a dollar amount, not repairs. Yes. Always a dollar amount, not mm-hmm. repairs. Mm-hmm. I would rather keep quality control over the repairs for the person. In the hands of the buyer. Yeah, I love that. Yes, unless the buyer's agent is bringing me an, an estimate that is just clearly ridiculous. <laughs> well, then back. Oh, no, we'll be fixing this. Yeah, those are amazing. Which happens. You guys, anything else on due diligence before we move forward to process? Understanding that your agent, while we are not inspectors, we're not contractors, we don't, you know, 
we are advocating for them and we are taking, especially when people are not in town, they might be on the West Coast. We're doing a FaceTime with them. They are really relying on our eyes and ears to evaluate the house, looking at the disclosure, making sure, do these things make sense? Does it jive? You know, the age of things that the sellers have disclosed, mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm -hmm. For those who have chosen to make an offer that says sans inspections, then that's all the more important that they have an agent who understands how that house works. Like to Jackie's point earlier, I always talk about it. what are the things that would make you run screaming in the other direction, right? Things are repairable for, for the most part. I mean, even major structural things are repairable. It's just that they're expensive to repair. Yeah. And most people don't particularly want to inherit large expenses that are, are going to be a pain to repair. Right. Most people are already stretched right? How many financially. large expenses are there to be had with a house that you as an agent can't get some kind of red flag about before you want it? No, that's exactly my right? point, though. That, that That is exactly what I tell okay. people, that oh, I, I try to... To calm their nerves, like they, they're very anxious about this, but what this, what about that? But like the big ticket items, those are very likely things that we as that experienced agents are going to be able to see, are going to be able to evaluate. Is this going to be a house that's going to be problematic, that you're going to have $100,000 worth of repair issues? And if not, then... What about the disclosures issue? You, you've paid your due diligence, you have an inspection, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, things you discover major things that haven't been disclosed or maybe disclosed either I'm, incorrectly or even dishonestly. I'm a, with people who haven't paid attention to guiding their sellers into how to fill that out uh -huh. correctly. The disclosure. The disclosure. I will look at it and say, oh, well, you know, we can put down $100,000 due diligence here because I can tell you for a fact that this is this is an incorrect piece of information and the seller has, has signed to its validity. So if we come against an, a, an issue that is going to be a really, really hard thing for you to overcome around this, like, I, yeah, I've got something where I can go to the agent if I have to, right? This is, I do not get confrontational off the bat. But if somebody, if I come and say, whatever, there's something that's going to cost $50,000 to fix. You said and they say no. They say no. Then I say, well, you told me that this house had gas to it and that there was a gas range. And in fact, there isn't even gas to the street. Guess what? That $100,000, that's a breach of contract by the seller. I'm not a lawyer, but I... So that's an example of the rare exception where you could get out of the contract and get your due diligence Correct. Back. And I think that, again, this is where I'll go back to, to experienced agents and why an agent can actually, while you know paying a real estate commission can look like a, a huge amount of money sometimes, a good agent might actually save you that and more just by being able to look down the road mm -hmm. and yeah. see what might be coming. Yes. Mm -hmm. Underground storage tanks, oil tanks, are, are the big uh, the big thing that is very difficult for us to even, without crawling through the crawl space and seeing you know, that. But then we know from the age of house whether that's likely to be there, right? Well, mm -hmm. age of house and neighborhood. And neighborhood. Um, mm -hmm. I've had an experience where there are actually two. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, we found the one. Two underground storage two tanks. Two underground storage tanks. We found the one, took care of it, and then when they go to do a massive renovation, there's a second. And the know, seller so, did not know. Right. Right. Because so, the houses change hands multiple times since these things were installed, so mm-hmm. it's easy for it to be missed. Mm-hmm. So there is, you know, to the counterpoint of what Nader and I were agreeing on earlier in terms of, well, what reason would you not buy this house? Are there is there the boogeyman out there that none of us know might be there? Sure. But that's life as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. right? If you're going to live mm-hmm. in, based on this very small amount of risk to you. And I talk to people about risk tolerance mm-hmm. when I first meet them. So do what I. Is, tell me what your risk, risk tolerance is to do things that as your your personality allows, mm-hmm. you are just going to feel uncomfortable and you're never going to do it. I, I'm, that's interesting. Two of you asked that question. I'm not sure I would know how to answer that. Well, risk tolerance isn't a singular thing. But I need to get a feel for my clients in terms of what is your risk tolerance for the condition of this house? So if you're telling me you you are risk averse, we need to look at a house built in a different era. Yep. Right. So yep. depending on the age of the house, the mm-hmm. risks change. Mm-hmm. Right. Asbestos, underground storage tank, uh, polybutylene, polybutylene pipes, um, virus cement siding, yeah. masonized. Yeah. But again, that what we've been talking about over and over is being able to understand based on the age of the house, what the building materials of that era were and what is likely to be found in that house or knob and tube. Uh, oh, lead paint. paint. Lead, lead paint. paint. Um, we still have a disclosure for lead paint because it was a big lawsuit. If it was built before 1980, it has lead paint. Aluminum wire. Aluminum wire. It was built between 1968 and 1978. Yeah. It's got, it probably has aluminum wire. If an insurer finds out that there's aluminum wiring in the house, they will not insure the house. Well, some will. This is the same with the So this is what I tell my buyers. You have young children. You're buying a 1920s house. (laughs) Right. Let me help you. There's going to be lead paint. If it has not been completely gutted, there is lead paint. Ask me, like, because to do a lead paint test is, I mean, last time I did one, it was $600. So on the terms of the inspections that you might do, one of the most expensive things. And I'm like, I can tell you it's here. You don't need. You don't need the inspection. inspection. Let me tell you. be able to tell you is the level of concentration in the paint. That they're going to be able to tell you with some level Mm -hmm. of data accuracy. But I'm going to tell you it's here and it'll be in higher concentrations on the trim around the doors Mm -hmm. and windows. Right. If you have small children and they accidentally chew on a windowsill and they find it sweet because that's that's what happens and they will go back for more and they're ingesting it, then it's a bad thing. But for the most part, this is now just a like it's sign this disclosure and let me give you the brochure and we're done with that. But but this goes to Nita's front loading, which I love I have so stolen that term. <laughs> that's a great it's so, great you know, now now i call it front loading when i mean front loading this information but it, it you know it is yeah, so. part of it is i have to understand your risk tolerance right so this is part of that front loading conversation if you're telling me we're about to have children or we have toddlers i'm going to be asking you about your risk tolerance for lead it's mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. yeah. it's yeah. going to affect the area. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. And there are people yeah. who are just, it doesn't matter. It's not just lack, right? If it's somebody who's Some, it, who very, best. very sensitive to any kind of environmental toxic, As someone sure. with asthma. Sure. Yes. I mean, then again, this is basically went into anaphylactic shock. If 
cats had been in the house. Like mm-hmm. that that yeah. level of yeah. um allergy to cats. Dander. And dander. Yeah. So that's a very difficult thing. And yeah. And yeah. If you are meeting with your agent for the first time and they aren't asking you this level of question, mm-hmm. that's a red flag. You keep, keep looking for an agent. Yeah. yeah. Because this yeah. front loading, this is getting mm-hmm. your priorities yes. right. Yeah. You need an agent who really wants and understands the need to get to know you and your family members well. You know, get all these things out as much as possible. Mm-hmm. We get, mm-hmm. you know, especially, you know, it's busy and people are rushed or whatever, but mm-hmm. the more front end will mm-hmm. make everything. Yeah. And that goes for the mortgage process too. For sure. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. oh, my dad's giving me X amount of money. Well, we need to know that now so that we don't get to within a week of closing and suddenly we're needing to procure a gift letter and, and right. you thought that didn't matter. And that's the or quitting your base. job and you didn't think they were going to check again Correct. right before closing. <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, yep. Yeah. Be, Consumers be, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> don't buy a car. Be don't buy a car. Don't buy a boat. No oh, boat. let's talk no about that for a minute. Okay. Explain. So when you first apply for the loan, you sign a loan application. And when you go to closing, you sign the exact same loan application because you have to sign it contemporaneously uh, with the, the closing document, yeah. minimizing their risk. So the point is that you don't want to make any big financial changes Correct. between those two signatures. Because otherwise you will be committing loan fraud. Yes. And by the way, the bank will be checking your credit score and what you've done prior to closing, mm-hmm. as well as the attorney doing an updated title search mm-hmm. before, you mm-hmm. know, after you've signed the documents and before they get it recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, so any big changes in your financial universe will be will be documented yeah. and you will be guilty of, of fraud. Okay, so thank you. Before we move on past the contract, can we talk a little bit about, again, in North Carolina, this thing called additional earnest money? Okay. So, in fact, there's initial earnest money and there's additional earnest money. Right. Initial earnest money. So it's about when and where that money is delivered. So initial earnest money is within the first five days? Five days, and it goes to the attorney, and it's held by the attorney. If you exit the contract before due diligence, technically that money goes back to you. If you... Do not exit the contract. The end of the due diligence period. Right. If you do not exit the contract by the end of the due diligence period, then that money is the seller's money if you exit the contract. So additional, like, I, I don't even understand why we have initial earnest right. money. I, I don't either. I would agree. It's silly. Right? I, I agree. You're sitting that money. Oh, I mean, it used to be the people. And- yeah. used to be that people would ask for it well, as the, part of the negotiation, but, but now it's basically, not Basically, if you think relevant. about how the contract works... The due diligence money is that non-refundable. This is what I'm giving you, Mr. Seller. This is my skin in the game. I'm going to buy this house. Then I'm going to have my appraisal. Then I'm going to have the inspections, everything else I'm going to do in my due diligence period. Mm -hmm. And then this other lump sum of money is going to be held by the attorney until closing. Mm -hmm. If I exit the contract at that point, that money is yours. Uh, But how do you get it? Well, you have to. You have to. So that's where... You know, that's it, it's happens. not as clear cut as due diligence, you which is a check made directly to the seller. You've got to you've got to release it. You've got to you have to have both signatures. You've got to have coming you've in, trust the signatures coming. I I get it, but even if you fight it, even if you fight it, the letter of the contract will prevail. Agreed, but then you have to sue. I mean, this is why I there is an agent in Durham who's huge. 
And when this first started, I, I was like, help. And we had an, an issue in our, my then office, very, very high priced house. Um, in order to, to investigate this cellar, I think it was a septic system, they disturbed some of the you know grass that was on top of it. So the seller decided that they were going to keep the, the due diligence money, but they also weren't going to release the uh, the earnest money. Because their soil had been Because disturbed. their soil had been disturbed and they were angry. And so they refused to sign the release. And so I use that example when I'm talking to my clients because I'm like, this money, actually, I, I was showing my colleagues the other day, I draw a little visual, but this money doesn't come into play mm-hmm. until we have, 5.01 p.m. on whatever that did. Mm-hmm. So there's no reason to give it to anybody. There's no reason to put it up front. There's no reason. But there's the no agent to that I'm referring to was just absolutely not. Earnest money will be delivered. you know. And I tell people at this point it's not worth losing a, a contract over or a, a potential deal. Mm-hmm. But it is something that if, if we're going to go into this with as many points and I mean, if I hadn't known that agent well and understood that they were just old school, right? And it was it was procedural rather than a, a yeah, rather than something coming from the actual seller themselves. But I'm like, why give that? I agree with you. I don't think why do we have to give it initially? Oh, why? Think, well, I guess to prove that you have it. Guys, can you back up for a second and Explain the difference between earnest money and additional earnest money. There isn't any. There's no difference. It's all earnest when it's given. I know. I'm talking about the time. When it becomes in dispute in terms of how you get it back. Okay. And these these are lines in the contract. In the contract. In the contract. I almost never do initial earnest money. Me. I don't either. And the reason reason being is if the seller is looking for that additional earnest money, that's a red flag to me. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a red flag mm-hmm. that that seller could cause problems mm-hmm. if we find something legitimate to exit the contract over. Okay, so let's jump to additional earnest money, which is due. At, what, I have my day after due diligence. Okay, I, I think I just read a, a legal Q&A that talked about the day after at 5 p.m. Mm-hmm. And what are the advantages there? You get through due diligence before any more money is at risk. You have you know the house is going to appraise. You know the inspection has revealed whatever it's going to reveal. You've negotiated. You've negotiated. negotiate. Any kind of repairs you can possibly mm-hmm. negotiate. Then, and in theory, this is how the contract's supposed to work. It's a right. small amount of due diligence and then a large amount of earnest money. It's now, backwards right now, but that's mm-hmm. market so at work. Is there any reason with our huge due diligence amounts for there to be additional earnest money i had a closing today where for the first time i had to look at a cd and there was earnest money on the cd and i'm like where's the earnest money (laughs) and of course it doesn't get credited to the the seller um but i'm looking for it i actually had the same thing last week like wait a minute go look at a cd not an alta and i'm like oh right 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 it took me yeah because we haven't done it in so long that's what I said to the attorney. Forgive me. I'm sorry. It's a reactive. We have um, not done this in a while. It's a reactive question for me. But we are seeing it crop up again. Okay. So let's move on to the process itself. I mean, it's certainly the contract and due diligence are huge parts of the starting process. But from the seller's perspective, what about judging offers? Oh, because 
Okay, and let me just sort of lay out the framework here. We as agents, when we are representing the seller and we get multiple offers, we're putting those offers into some kind of spreadsheet or form so that we can look at all the different terms. And it's very easy for a seller to just jump to the bottom line, the purchase price, and want to be romanced by that. But there's so much else to consider. I always tell my sellers, be careful of the extreme purchase price and the low due diligence. Mm -hmm. Be careful because that is someone looking to get a second bite out of the apple. Yep. Explain that. They're going to hammer you on repairs because they know that you don't want to come back on the market. You're coming back on the market, the seller's hamstrung. They are not going to be able to sustain the price they got. They're not going to be able to sustain the momentum they got. It's highly unlikely. So if they come back on the market, they're taking a blow. Somebody with an extreme offer, and it's always relatively low to diligence, but an extremely high offer, they're just basically looking to hammer you Mm -hmm. on all the repairs to make you come down. And if you think it won't happen, we're all here to tell you it will. funny that repair request or credit is just the exact amount of the amount that they paid over us. Exactly. Exactly. Every time. Every time. So it's like, yeah, no, we know that game. We're here. We got that. And they undoubtedly have a a buyer's agent who's telling them, oh, don't worry. I'll get this back for you. you. And I I had that conversation with the seller today. I'm like, you know, these people have actually made a reasonable request. Um. And I have to tell you that many, many times I have seen the amount that's been offered over asking walk back, mm-hmm. um, you know, with with nonsense. 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 Absolute nonsense. Requests. Yeah. Um, and overinflated estimates. And, yeah, I I mean, this is a, who would have foreseen this, but the, the due diligence being a it's, a, it's a demonstration of how serious of a buyer you are. So yeah. as a buyer, if you're bulking at somebody telling you you yeah. have to put X amount up or down, um, it, it's an indication of how serious you are in terms yeah. of it, to follow the, the the transaction through to the end. My analogy there is getting in a boat and going across the river, and we're all in the same boat. The buyer and the seller are in the same boat, and they both have to figure out how to get to the other bank together. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all want we're all going there. Theoretically, you're all going there. But if some people try and sink the ship on You have a buyer, you have a seller who is intent on sinking the ship because maybe they've gotten another buyer or something like somebody put a backup offer in for, you know. Exactly right. That backup offer that's 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 turning that seller's eye. You never know. You never know what's going on. The one experience I have with that, where the seller decided to say goodbye and say no to the first buyer and then went with the second, didn't turn out well for the seller. Mm-hmm. Did not. And I'm like, this is where, you know, greed mm-hmm. is not one of my favorite personal traits. Mm-hmm. It can backfire. Mm-hmm. It can backfire. Especially when it's just focused on money. You know, there's an old adage in real estate, your first offer is often oh, yes. your best offer. Yep. And so part of what I tell my folks is don't be afraid to be the first offer in the game. It's not going to work against you unless, okay, there there are some times when I say that, but it's not going to work against you in a competing offer situation to be the first one in the game if you know it's going to be competing. Correct. You could possibly call somebody else to get off the fence if they're like, I don't know about this house, but another buyer could jump in and you could create a competing offer situation. 
by and large, by and large, sellers respect the first person who commits to the house. Mm-hmm. And they will almost always give the first person who commits to the house a second chance. I, I can't explain it, but it's an emotional thing. I've seen it. I've seen it with my own buyers. Yep. This is not prompting by me. This is my buyers coming back to me. But but are you sure the first offer had a chance to know that they were competing? Mm-hmm. There's there's an emotional component to this that you have to always consider. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, let's talk about love letters. So for consumers, you've probably heard about this. Maybe you haven't heard it referred to as a love letter, but it's uh, you're making an offer and you just want to present who you are and who your family is or what your job is or why you feel a special connection to the house. And so you write a letter. Those are referred to as love letters. And... What panelists can you say about love letters? Oh, well, I'm going to jump in because I know Jay has a lot to say about this. <laughs> so I'm just going to... I remember when there were people coming to me saying, well, can't we just write a letter? My friends, what a yada, yada, yada. And it was one of those things that agents were sort of catching on to from mm-hmm. the general public about how do you differentiate? Like if there are five offers on the table, how do you differentiate? And so we started writing and sending pictures and the dog was involved. And (laughs) Dogs are not a protected clan. So you can send a picture of your dog. Send a picture of your dog. Jay says what she has to say. Spoken from a dog lover. I, I, you know, once Google... You can put a name into Google, and I'm going to be devil's advocate here. I'm not so sure why we can't do these love letter things anymore because the amount of information that is out there to be had about who is writing an offer on your house once you've got their name. And the name is is on the contract unless somebody buys it up. I rarely had a client. I just learned for the first time that in New York, the names are not on the contract, but the seller doesn't know who the people are. And they can't, we so they can't look into that. Well, until we mark that, yeah. that, write it down, send it to the Real Estate Commission, who yeah. hopefully are listening in on our podcast. We really do need these offers to be enough. Mm-hmm. I think until we do that, there's no love letter thing. It does make sense. ridiculous. Because people can Google them. Yeah, people yes. can Google them. I always say, don't, no, don't do the love letter. Don't, I always say, don't do the love letter. Let your offer speak for yeah. itself. Let me, as your agent, put the language in my cover letter yeah. that is oh, not going to violate your fair housing laws yeah. and Agreed. make sure that you are positioned properly to get this out. Good segue, Jay. Can we segue into fair housing and explain to consumers what that means for them and what that means for us as agents? <laughs> well... We might we might be a little too deep into the line for me to make all the protected classes. But the thing about there the the quagmire of protected class, if you step into it, because most people do it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. They do it for the right reasons. But I never ever want someone without children to be discriminated against because someone has a heartfelt approach because someone else has children. But Jay, I've seen it happen too many times. I've seen it happen too many times where the seller is like, I really just love the fact that they have children and they're going to be playing in the playground. And all I keep thinking of is all the poor people who can't have children, who are trying to have children, but they don't have them. And 
they're, they're, life they're, is well, unfair. Life, life is totally unfair. Life is unfair. Life is totally unfair. But fair housing laws are not. If you've got 20 offers on your house and five of them are really, really similar and somebody is like your family and you're looking for any reason That is the definition definition. I know, but I think what we have to, what we have to realize here is that that's the reality of being human. Like you're not necessarily discriminating because they're a protected class in the sense that- It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If you are discriminating. That's unrealistic to me. Someone's personal situation. To me, that's not fair. So how do you choose? The numbers. No, but the, the, but there's always going to be a difference. There's always no, going to be. I disagree. There's I, always going to be. I disagree. I disagree. I think there are times when that it's like this thing that's you know we're all waiting for the Supreme Court to decide. If you've got people that otherwise are equal, well, yeah, but then you can go back. Decide. Then you. How do you decide? Then you, you can't you counter and so you say. <laughs> Always the seller can counter and say, okay, let's we, five people offer. Yeah, go back. Will these people go up on due diligence? Will they go up on their can they decrease their closing time? Can they increase whatever it is that they're that are the ideal terms of the seller? Go you if you're sitting on five offers that are exactly alike, you're congratulations. First of all, you know, congratulations. <laughs> that's outstanding. And then go back and, you know, figure out how you want to counter based on the whole picture. Like, is one cash, you know, like there's so many different things that come into play. Can somebody close earlier? Can somebody let them rent back? You know, all these things. It's so hard to to say, like, this is how you do it, right? We all know in real time, if we are looking at 20 offers, and we have seen, we've all had houses that have had 20 offers or whatever, and crazy, fantastic offers. Great. But it really all does come down to educating your sellers on understanding, like, again, risk. What is the risk? These people, maybe somebody doesn't have to worry about a mortgage or somebody is putting down 75%. And if it doesn't, their offer is so much better than the cash offer. You know, they're just, there's so many different variables that can impact Cash is not always king, by the way. I yeah. wish we would let no, that, no, that go but away. I'm, I'm, I'm partly playing devil's advocate. Yeah. Let's go. Okay, so you know, somebody decides that they want that. I have this is true story. Uh, one of the buyers was an electrical engineer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my client had, he, he was an electrical engineer for Cisco. That was it. That's how they chose. Mm-hmm. And this is back in the in the mm-hmm. days when biolesses were allowed yeah. and they were prolific. That's how they chose the mm-hmm. because there was a personal connection. Mm-hmm. And I think again, I am I am absolutely playing devil's advocate because I understand the, the really really good reasons we have fair housing laws. My my interest is in how pragmatically applicable they are, and I don't think you can legislate. The, the, I don't think you can legislate the fairness into being. But I really the unfair. Going back to the anonymous offers, like in other states where they can't, they don't submit. You know, they the seller doesn't know the names. Of the people. Then that's what then that's what the real estate commission needs to do. Yeah. Right. But if we're left in this universe where people's names 
are going on the offer and all somebody has to do is type that into a Google search. Right. I think holding us accountable yeah, that's for so, whether there's a lot so. or not, when you might learn that the person is an electrical engineer and that's how you're going to choose, I just, you know, that I just... I, to me, that's sort of trying to legislate minutia, which is how we got to the due diligence contract to begin with, right? Because we kept trying to define and define and material, define. And, and you have split hairs to such a degree that, you know, you can pay high-priced attorneys to go yeah. to court and argue for you instead of rolling it backwards and having it be put up or shut up, which, if you take the names out of the contract, is the equivalence to me of due diligence, then take the names out of the contract. You don't allow the consumer to see who is, is interacting with them in this space. I mean, listen, I have sat in a closing attorney's office and I had, it was a cash closing on LANC, and this is, you know, 30 years ago. The people who came to the sellers came to the closing. It was a teacher and a lawyer. It was their land they were selling. And the reason they came to the closing was to see what the color of the skin was of the people who were purchasing the land that they were selling. What? They had been, yes, they had been under contract twice before and not, you know, seen fit to make it disappear one way or another because they didn't like it. And sure enough, the people who were actually buying it were black and they were so rich that they were paying cash. Yeah. And they didn't show up to the closing. And it just was like one of those, I would like to write a little, you know, theater sketch over it because the look on the face of those two white people sitting in that office, realizing that they weren't even going to get to meet these people, having driven all the way from whichever county they came from. But that sticks in my head. I, I get why fair housing laws exist. I do, but I think Jay is absolutely right. The only way to, to, is to really ensure that people do not discriminate for any reason is to take out the names. I'm off my soapbox. Sorry. No, excellent debate. Excellent. We're running out of time here, and before we close, any words uh, for consumers on how to get to closing successfully? How do they need to be behaving and what do they need to be doing between uh, end of due diligence and closing? Did we mention don't go buy a car right. or a boat or a boat or anything else you have to finance? Don't do anything that changes your financial position. I had a client once who received an inheritance that they had not, they didn't know what they time didn't in anticipate their life they were going to get it. They knew that was coming, but it wasn't during the process of buying well all of a sudden the estate settled and they got their settlement so they paid off their student loans thinking that would be a good thing Ooh, ouch they paid ouch. off a debt yeah well, all of a sudden the bank's like whoa 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 and the bank raised their interest rates <laughs> before closing how big a bill should people Don't avoid paying anything like if you have a ten thousand dollar balance on your credit card because that's normal for you and you want to go and you pay it off every month. If that's normal for you, keep it normal. Okay. But don't do anything outside of normality when it comes to your credit rate. Okay. I think it's also a good conversation with the lender that you're using. You know, really having the lender, because mm -hmm. I mean, I think good the point. lenders that we use are really good at educating their, you know, our buyers mm -hmm. 
on the front end mm-hmm. and saying, here's the thing I need you to understand and mm-hmm. how it's going to impact your, your rate and whatever. And they're very good at saying, you need to pay out this credit card or you'll, you'll, you'll really benefit from doing X, Y, Z, especially if they're not buying for six months, maybe they're planning in the spring and it allows them enough time to, to kind of get things straight and mm-hmm. set themselves up for the best mm-hmm. possible rate and credit score. And my answer to that question is really simple. Stop bulking at the amount of real estate commission that you pay and hire an experienced agent. (laughs) When you're getting on a plane, you want to learn how to fly it yourself or would you like to put somebody in that seat Mm -hmm. who's flown that same route however many times before Mm -hmm. and can give you some level of confidence that you are going to get to the finish line with a minimal amount of stress. And and I... Not zero, because we... There's no... Not zero. But, you know, I think there's going to be turbulence. We're going to do another podcast just on why to use a well-qualified, licensed, experienced realtor. (laughs) And those, uh, your clients, for the three of you, are very lucky. Very, very lucky people. Um, One last word. As are yours, Marcia. Oh, thank you. That's very generous of you. The moving day. Any advice? (laughs) Well, there's one person around this table who has moved recently. I have not moved for 21 years. There's a reason we don't move. There's a reason we don't move. I'm the person who has recently moved, and I will tell you my only big piece of advice is do not hurt yourself physically during the move. And if you are a a person of a certain age uh, or maybe even a young person who has some joint issues, it's not worth it. The last time we moved, uh, my husband was 60 years old, and he's in tremendously good shape. He could barely walk for two years because he hurt his back, and then he had surgery. And this time, I have a foot that's bothering me. So, you know, it costs 20 or 25 bucks an hour to hire a young person to help you move boxes and put things together, and uh, it's worth it. So it it's, um, and I'll tell you, every realtor should have to move or go through some kind of moving simulation every few years because it is <laughs> it's stressful. stressful. It is so stressful. So really, stressful. I, I I am still living in the house I've lived in for 20 years. But we did move twice in one year. Long story. But it really huh. reawakened my sensitivity for what people I know. go through yeah. when they move. Yeah. And we, are as, we as agents are asking a lot of them. Attorneys are mm-hmm. asking them for things. Lenders and life itself, uh, stressing them out on top of the stressors of the move. So be kind to yourself during that process, but take care of yourself physically because it is, it's demanding. So hire a professional, experienced, empathetic agent. (laughs) There you go. You guys perhaps have some young folks on speed dial who can come help you. Right, right, right. Or, you know, as, as our son has told us, hey, Costs you twenty or twenty five bucks an hour to find, and when you hire somebody off of Craigslist. So, um, but they're always what are the college hunks called? I think they're college called hunks. Oh, sure. That's a lot of They were disappointing. Oh my gosh! All right, thanks, guys. Uh, we'll talk in a couple months. Uh, enjoy your summer. Thank you. You too.